You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, let me be what I hope is not the first person to say to you, good morning. I am delighted that you're here. And when I say I'm delighted that you're here, I'm not just saying I'm delighted you're here. I'm delighted that you're here because I have this closet shadow fear that I'm going to show up on a Sunday and nobody's going to be here. If y'all ever try to pull that on me, I'm going to lose it. All right. I am super amped that you guys are here because this is church. This is church. This is the people of God, the body of Christ, the fellowship of the Spirit. This is the new covenant community of the Spirit, and there's no place else that you would rather be. You might think there is, but you'd be wrong. This is church where we get to be in his presence with one another. Now, my name's Eric Barton, and I get to pastor the downtown campus of Bethel Bible Church, and we are so glad you're here because we believe that this is no accident, that God has, in his grace, divinely directed and purposed your steps, that you would be in this place this morning so that the God of the universe, the sovereign, infinite, omnipresent, all-powerful God could actually commune and connect with you and that we can connect with one another. It's an amazing thing. These are eternal flashes. You may not feel like that, but we are convinced that what we're doing here matters for all eternity. So if you are a visitor, I want to say a special word of welcome. We are so glad that you're here. We don't think that's an accident either. And we want to help you get connected and integrated into this body of believers if that is God's plan. And here's what we would say, dogmatically and without reservation, God's plan for your life is the local church. Now, we would love for it to be this local church. We would love for that to be the case, and we are equipped and ready to help that happen. But if it's not this local church, so be it. We want to help you get connected someplace because we believe that you will never be who God created you to be until you are fully engaged in the life of a local church. And so, if you're visiting... You can see a couple seat back pocket cards in front of you. If you would take one of those, fill it out with your contact information. Let us know how we can get in touch with you. You can drop it in that plastic file folder box between the exit doors. We would love to reach back out and just begin the conversation with you. Or if you don't really feel like writing because you're afraid of writer's cramp like I am, that's fine too. All you got to do is text your number or your email address to this number. Just text this. We'll have a record that you were here. We would love to follow back up with you and see if the Lord leads you to connect with this body. Now, speaking of this body, there's some things going on in the life of this church I need to draw your attention to. Today, immediately after I say amen, there is a lunch on the second floor for all of our life group leaders. This is sort of the the tip of the spear of community and discipleship with our adults is our life group. So if you are a life group leader, we eagerly anticipate and expect you to join us for lunch on the second floor. Uh, Lunch is provided, child care is provided. Please be a part of that. And then, Pursuant to that, on September 9th, this is a big, big Sunday for us, September 9th. If you are not already engaged in a life group, if you're not already connected with another little clump of other believers, September 9th is our big connect. I kind of call it like a big rush party, all right? We're going to be on the second floor. We'll have tables set up. All of our existing life groups will be there, and they'll try to woo you and schmooze you away from other groups. It's a great time. If you're not in a group or you're particularly dissatisfied with your current group, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, September 9th is your day. We want you to come and be a part of that. If you have any questions about that, you can talk to Mike Hall or you can talk to Tyler Sullins. 
Now then, September 12th is a Wednesday. In this very room, Mike Johnson will be leading us through Financial Peace University with uh, Dave Ramsey. If you've never, never gone through Financial Peace University, I strongly encourage you to pray about being a part of that. If you want more information about that, you can talk to Mike Johnson. Mike Johnson is one of our elders, has the greatest hair in Western civilization. He's easy to find. September 12th, beginning in this very room, Financial Peace University, I hope you'll be a part of that. Now, you're here in the second service, and I'm delighted that you're here. However, in our first service this morning at nine, we had our promotion Sunday. We had all of our uh, preschoolers that are going to promote up to kindergarten, we recognize them. All of our fifth graders that are promoting to the sixth grade to be a part of our student ministry, we recognize them as well. And we had an elder or a deacon and his wife adopt, so to speak, one of those children and give them a Bible and commit to pray for them for the rest of this year. It was a really wonderful time. Just take my word for it. Uh, we're so thankful for what God is doing with our children's ministry. Stephanie Mazingo is our volunteer ministry coordinator and leader for all of that. She's amazing, and she's leading an incredible team. If you haven't been, that's right, somebody said woo. Always appropriate to woo in this room. If you haven't been on a tour walking around through the second floor, I invite you to do that, to see what these men and women who are volunteering their own time, their goods, their skills, they've built bookshelves, they've put up a whole camping scene out in the foyer to demonstrate that we are camping out in God's word. Because you see, they believe what we believe, what I hope we all believe, that the children of this church are not the future of the church. They are the church. So we get the opportunity and the privilege to pour into them even now, to be a part of God's program of holding these little crowns over their heads and raising them up to be the person that God created them to be. So just in keeping with what we did this morning, I'm gonna invite you to pray with me and then we'll continue together in worship as we study God's word. Let's pray. Father, we do wanna continue to commit these young lives that we recognize this morning to you that you would do a work in each life, in each household, that you would raise these children up to the full knowledge and the character of Christ. God, may it be exactly as I have prayed. In each one of these lives, give us the wisdom to lead and the courage to follow. And we pray this in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, there was a sweet, silver-haired saint by the name of Ethel. And Ethel was having a bad day. Ethel was deeply frustrated. Ethel was at her wit's end, and so she called her friend, her neighbor. She said, I need you to come over. I'm about to lose my mind. The neighbor sounded very concerned. Ethel, what seems to be the problem? Now calm down. Ethel said, well, you see, I have this, cross, this uh, jigsaw puzzle and it's absolutely wearing me out. I don't know where to begin. I'm so confused. This is the hardest jigsaw puzzle I've ever seen. And the neighbor said, okay, now calm down, Ethel. Tell me what's going on. She says, well, I have all the pieces spread out on the table, but I don't even know how to start. She said, Ethel, do you have the box? Yes, I have the box. It's set up. What is the picture? Well, it's this big, beautiful barnyard rooster. I don't know what to do. Can you please come and help? Sure. So the neighbor comes over finds Ethel in a total tizzy. The neighbor takes just a couple quick glances at the table, says, okay, Ethel, here's what we're gonna do. This is never gonna work. We're never going to be able to solve this puzzle. It's impossible. But here's what I want you to do. You sit over there, take a couple deep breaths. I'm gonna make you a cup of tea. So Ethel sat down, the neighbor made her some tea. She began to relax. 
Ethel, take a big, big breath. And so she did. Finally, the neighbor said, okay, Ethel, I think it's time for us to just relax and put all of those cornflakes back in the box. You see, sometimes our lives can sort of feel that way. A bunch of random pieces that don't seem to fit together and the picture's all wrong. What's worse is how sometimes our churches actually feel like that. A whole bunch of disparate pieces that don't seem to fit and we don't even have the right picture. But as I've been thinking about this passage this whole week, I've been praying, may it never be said <laughs> of our church that we are a big box of cornflakes, random pieces with the wrong picture. No, in fact, what we're going to find out today is that our church has the proper pieces and we have been given the right picture. Now, let me just, let me just preach for a moment because this is intensely important and practical for, I believe, every single person in this room. Because we now live 18 years into the 21st century, which means we have all successfully come through the 20th century. And in my humble yet completely accurate opinion, I believe one of the greatest problems that we inherited from the 20th century was this idea called social atomism. Let me explain. Social atomism is this idea that everyone believes we are merely pieces and parts, disconnected little particles that have no ultimate purpose that are not really significantly connected to anybody else in any meaningful way. Therefore, I live my life, I live my life, I do what I do, it has nothing to do with you. Now you can imagine if you would allow an entire society to adopt that philosophy and sociology, and we have. We merely live our lives, whatever I do is fine for you, me, whatever you do is fine for you, and we have no other interaction that spawns off all sorts of behavioral and societal dysfunction. If I'm merely a piece's part going through life with no absolute purpose, then it doesn't really matter what I do. There are no consequences. Everyone is beginning to understand that this is a problem in Western civilization. Nobody seems to know what to do about it. But thanks be to God, we bring ancient truths to current challenges. And God's word is going to speak directly to how do we address social atomism? We are not a collection of atoms floating around cosmically adrift. No, 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 no. We are purposed. We are prepared. We are positioned to be molecules. All of these pieces and parts come together and they create something cosmically glorious. So that's our big idea for the morning, believe it or not. Our big idea, our challenge for our church is to make molecules. If you'll allow me, I'll defend that. If you've got your Bibles, open them please to Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. We're going to learn how important it is to make molecules. And I'll tell you at the outset, the Apostle Paul is going to use a different metaphor. He's going to use the body. But in my experience, people in church in the 21st century don't really like being referred to as feet or ears or less noble body parts. And so I'm just going to sort of modernize. I think if Paul were alive today, he would love to use the imagery, the metaphor, the analogy of molecules and atoms. It's a little bit less ignoble at times. So Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. I'll read the entire passage through verse 16, and then we'll try to unpack it, and we'll see if we can apply it. 
Chapter 4, verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is God's word. This is our charge as a church. This is the letter to the Ephesians. The Apostle Paul writes this to the churches in the surrounding area around Ephesus. This is Ephesus. It's an absolutely central location in our Bible. The Apostle Paul is sitting in Rome in prison. It's his first Roman imprisonment. This was not how it was supposed to have gone. This is the Apostle Paul, the greatest Christian, I would argue, in all of history that we know of. This is Paul, the Jew of Jews, the Pharisee of Pharisees, the most learned, highly educated resource that God's going to unleash on the Gentile world. He spends at least 14, possibly 17 years out in the desert getting direct instruction from the risen Lord Jesus himself. And then he's unleashed on the world. He does a couple missionary journeys, but then he is imprisoned. He finds himself in Rome under house arrest, and his plans are not God's plans. <laughs> Maybe you've been there. Maybe you think, this is, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to do this. I'm going to take charge of this. It's going to go like this. And God says, I got a better idea. Sit down and shut up. But maybe that's just me. And you find that by grace, God does involve us and include us in those plans, even if they aren't ours. And during that time, Paul writes the letter to the church at Ephesus. Without this imprisonment, it's possible. We don't have this letter. Paul never would have stopped long enough to write it. But here he is in prison with a captive audience, and he writes to the church at Ephesus. This is Ephesus on the west coast of modern-day Turkey. So much of our New Testament has to do with Ephesus. This is where Timothy is installed as pastor. We have First and Second Timothy. We have the book of Ephesians, all written to the churches of Ephesus. Paul himself is there for almost three years, teaching daily in a school. Ephesus is where the seven sons of Sceva get whipped naked. That's a bad day. When a demon whips you naked, you got something to like post on Instagram. I got whipped naked by a demon today. Check it. No, don't do that. Don't do that. Ephesus is a central city. Ephesus is where an angry mob of people grabs Paul, tries to tear him to pieces, drag him into a 25,000 person theater while they scream and chant, great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two solid hours before Paul is rescued. 
Ephesus has this church that is literally in the shadow of one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Artemis, that featured this enormous black meteorite that had been carved into a grotesque likeness of Artemis. Artemis, the god of the Ephesians. It is here in Ephesus that the apostle, the disciple John, ministers, we believe, after his exile in Patmos is over. It is here that we believe John brings Mary, mother of Jesus, and where she likely dies. Ephesus is absolutely central. And Paul, sitting in Rome across the sea, understands that Ephesus has issues, that they are beginning to break apart under the pressure of the Roman and Greek society. This is what we have, Ephesus. Now, the book of Ephesians is neatly broken in half. You have three chapters of doctrine simply explaining the glories of who God is, what God has done. It's just about God taking objects of wrath and transforming them into trophies of grace. Three chapters of it. And then in chapter four, verse one, we have a pivot point and God says, or Paul says, now that you understand what God has done, now you get to understand what you are supposed to do. Three chapters of doctrine, three chapters of application or exhortation. In other words, the book of Ephesians follows the pattern of all of Scripture, and it goes like this. The imperative always follows the indicative. Let me break out that completely grammatical, geeky thing I just said there. The instruction to do something is always after we are told what God has already done. Always, every single time. If you ever find yourself thinking, well, I'm supposed to do this, and then God will do a thing, stop, start over. There's grace for that too, but you're wrong. God has done a thing, and that prepares us now to do a thing. Always in that order, this is the book of Ephesians. So, just in the interest of time, I'm going to parachute right back into Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. We're just going to unpack this as quickly as we can. Chapter 4, verse 7, Paul says, but grace was given... Let me explain. The first six verses of chapter four have to do with the unity of the church, the great common denominator, that since we were all objects of wrath and we have been redeemed and transformed into trophies of grace, there is this great grand unity. But by definition, unity requires diversity. It is not the same as uniformity, where we are all the same. No, we are wonderfully masterfully different and yet we have this unity and Paul says grace was given he's very intentional to use a past tense verb here it has happened if you are a believer then you have received the grace of God whether or not you feel it whether or not you fully appreciate or recognize it grace has been given to each one every single believer if you are indwelled by God's Holy Spirit, he has given you grace. Now, grace, as we've been taught rightly, does often mean unmerited favor. God's undeserving blessings poured out on us. And that's right, and that's true in this context as well. But it also has the idea and the notion of God's divine enablement. God's divine enablement has been given to every single believer, every single one who was spiritually separate from God has now been brought near in right standing, right relationship with God through unmerited favor and we have been given divine enablement. Every single one of us. Why? Because God desires above all things to be recognized. Because he knows he's worth it. 
Now, how do you image the invisible God now that the image of the invisible God, namely Christ, has ascended to the right hand of the Father? How do you image the invisible God in this world, in this age? Ha, ha, ha. You demonstrate his image on an infinite number of unique canvases. Do you see? The church is where God demonstrates his glory. And to make sure that that happens, he gives everybody, every believer, unmerited favor and divine enablement. Every single one. Every single person in the church has a, if you will allow, a supernatural capacity. Whatever you output is always more than you input. Man, I've been studying, I've been doing this, I've been praying, and then I got to work serving and engaging in the church, and the Lord just did a thing. It's just amazing. I didn't even know I knew those things, but God just brought it out of me. Right! Because there is a divine enablement. You've always secretly suspected that you were a superhero. Guess what? You are! You have a supernatural enablement that God gives for you to do even more than you ever thought or imagined. And then you don't even know the impact that you have when you engage and you serve the church. You see, every single one of us has been given grace. Verse 7, he continues, to each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Jesus is the sovereign captain and champion of the cosmos, and it is he that precisely positions and prepares every person. He says, you will be in this way. It's not up to us to tell you what your giftings are. Jesus, according, and we should not expect more nor less from people because Jesus, our sovereign king, has distributed this according to his own gift. Verse eight, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. What's Paul doing here? Well, as Martin Luther said, scripture interprets scripture. One of my professors in seminary used to say, Dr. John Hanna, he said, I like the New Testament a lot. It sure reminds me of the Old Testament. That's right. Paul's gonna do something amazing here. He knows that he's an apostle. He knows that he's writing scripture. He knows that it's inspired by God's Holy Spirit. So Paul, in verse eight, takes Psalm 68, the inspired hymn book of the nation of Israel. He takes Psalm 68 and he sort of nuances it and he tweaks it. And he says, you know that Psalm 68? Psalm 68, by the way, you can look this up on your own, has to deal with God himself has gone before the nation of Israel and fought and won a victory. And so they have brought the ark into the, into the temple. God himself has ascended. And as the victor, he can now share the blessings and the bounty of the battle and give them to his people. Paul quotes Psalm 68 and says, oh my goodness, it's Jesus. The victor of the battle is Jesus. Because Paul's gonna go on to say, he descended, he ascended. He has defeated my sin, my death. Yea, verily, even my shame at the cross, he's the victor. And because he's the victor, because he's the winner, because he's the champion, because he's the king, it is his purvey to give the gifts of his victory to people. And that's precisely what he does. Not only that, he gives those gifted people to the church. This is what verse eight is saying. He is the captain, he is the champion, he's the king. He gives gifts to his people and then he gives those people to his bride. Another one of my professors, Dr. Harold Honer, put it this way. He said, God's gifts to the church are gifted people. You may have always thought to yourself, self, I'm God's gift to the church. You're right! 
If you are operating in your giftedness and you are serving, engaging, going low for the sake of raising up the body, of making a molecule, you are. God has given you grace. God has given you divine enablement. And he has given you to the church. You are not your own, do you see? You were bought with a price. Paul quotes Psalm 68 and says, this is true of Jesus. And then he's going to unpack that a little bit further. In verse 9, he says, In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? If you really want to geek out and Greek out, and I know some of you do, you can read there's three major opinions on what this actually means. It could have to do with Jesus and the incarnation. Maybe so. That's what John Calvin thought. Fine. He's dead now. There's another opinion that says that this has to do with Jesus between his death and his resurrection, that he descended in the lower parts of the, of the earth and preached to the demons and the spirits and the who knows. Okay, fine. You want that one? Great. There's a third opinion that says, no, he died. He literally, physically was dead and buried in the earth. That's how I take it. You disagree? Spectacular. Buy me a Danish downstairs. We'll talk about it for hours. It doesn't really matter. It could be any of those three. But the point is, he went as low as he could go. And in verse 10, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now that sounds nice. Paul's just going, to go, wow, Jesus did a thing and he's ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. Yay. Whoa. Again, Paul's doing a thing. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 23, Jeremiah says of Yahweh, the sovereign God, he is the inhabitor of the cosmos. He is everywhere. There is nowhere where he is not. He is the filler of that which exists. He fills all things. And Paul says, it's Jesus. He is the filler of all things. Now, you may be here this morning and go, whoa, that actually sort of expands and elevates and deepens, thickens, and increases my understanding of Jesus. Good. That's why we do what we do. Because I promise you, every single one of us thinks too lowly of Jesus. Every single one of us has the opportunity to think more highly, more rightly, to hold Jesus as more beautiful, as more believable. And that's why we do what we do. So that in all things, we will get as we gaze at our Christ. This is what Paul's doing. He's writing going, oh my gosh, he's the one of Jeremiah 23. Oh my gosh, he's the fulfiller of Psalm 68. Don't you see, Ephesus? You've begun an adventure of missing the point. Don't you see who this Jesus is? He is worth it. Well, he continues on. And in verse 11, and he, that's Jesus, gave, he was not obligated to, by grace, he gave, listen to what he gave, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Now, every single one of these roles we could spend an entire sermon on. Mercifully, we're not going to do that. But clearly what we're doing here with these offices, with these roles, with these giftednesses, we are addressing the human propensity to atomism. Everybody has this fleshly desire to be loved and yet they resist connection and community. So how are we going to address that? Paul says, well, this Jesus who fills the cosmos has given these people to address, redeem, and resolve this atomism. Now, it's sort of interesting here in verse 11. He's given apostles. He's given the prophets, the evangelists, for those who are not yet in the church. The evangelists are those who go outside the church and give the gospel. So it's not just for us to look inwardly until we implode. No, 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 no. He's given the office for the world at large. 
the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and then the shepherds and teachers, I hope your Bible says. Rightly translated, because there's only one the for shepherds and teachers. By the way, that word shepherd is the same word, poimen, that we translate as pastor. Same word in the scriptures, poimen, shepherd or pastor. It is the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. In other words, that's the same idea. It's the same function. In other words, the way that we as pastors can best shepherd our flock is by the instruction and the teaching of God's word. It's not that we have pastors and the teachers. No, 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 no. The pastor shepherds by teaching God's word. It's the centrality of how we love and lead and guide and guard our people is through the instruction of God's word. That's why we do what we do. We don't do a whole lot of topical stuff where we just say, hey, listen, we're going to celebrate Great Uncle's Day. No, 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 no. We take you through, this is what God's word says. Because when we study God's word as God's people, in his spirit, God literally speaks to us in the present tense. This is how God has equipped these people. Why has God given these people? Well, verse 12 is an absolutely central passage for understanding what the church is. Absolutely massively central passage for ecclesiology. Why did God give these gifts? Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body, or if you would like, the molecule of Christ. To equip the saints. Let me, just, let me just address these real fast. This word, equip, it's a very interesting, unique word. It appears in the Gospels. It appears in Galatians. In the Gospels, Jesus approaches his disciples, and they are sitting on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and they are mending their nets. Same word. There's a problem with their nets. They're torn, they're worn out, they're disused, they're misused, they're not working properly. And so the disciples have to mend these nets. Why would they mend their nets? To fold them up and stack them and put them in a closet? No! To use them to go and fish. In the book of Galatians, Paul uses this same word. He says, when you find a bone out of joint, you mend it. You pop it back into socket and sometimes it hurts. It's the same word. Paul says that God, Christ, has given these people to mend. We translate it nicely as equip, but what that means is that sometimes we have to sort of chisel off some rough edges and say, this is where we believe Jesus has positioned, prepared, and unleashed you. This is Mike Hall. We call him our equipping pastor, and we don't wink, wink, nudge, nudge at it. He's literally our equipping pastor. His mandate and his mission is to do Ephesians 4.12. This is what Mike does. And sometimes people don't like it when he jerks them back into socket. It hurts and they leave. This is why we have Mike, because he doesn't care. He's wonderfully gifted at doing that. He mends things. He, he restores things. And then he properly aims them and he unleashes them. And if you want to see how glorious that is, you should come to Discover Bethel. By the way, it's... Sunday, September 30th, right after the second service. And you will see all of these different people who were volunteer church members that Mike has sat with, had coffee with, had lunch with, and he has sort of said, well, who are you? What are you doing? What do you want to do? And then Mike has sort of prepared them, equipped them, and unleashed them. And now we have people like Stephanie Mazingo leading our children's ministry. We have people like Lauren Rowe leading our student ministry. We have Mark Alderson leading our men's ministry. We have Robin Gilmore leading our women's ministry. And it's because... Mike's job is to equip them for the work of ministry. Now, speaking of the work of ministry, it's work. It's never supposed to be effortless. It takes a lot of doing and planning. But this is what we do. 
the great irony of the church is that it's all about people. There is a fallen societal desire to isolate and to be independent, and yet the thing that people desire most is to know and to be known. So there's this resistance. It is the church that is the solution to that ill. This is what we want to be intentionally focused on. This is why we started this series in August about pursue. We are to pursue. There's a goal. There's a purpose. There's an aim. There's a picture on the box. About three weeks ago, I started this in the book of Haggai. We talked about that the church is the demonstration of the showplace of God's glory in, the, in this age and that it is time. There's no higher goal, no, no more better priority. Two weeks ago, Mike taught us through Hebrews 2 and showed us the enormity and the extent of what God would do in Christ to send his son vulnerably into our midst. Last week, Tyler Sullins talked about, through Ephesians 2, the glory of our identity in the gospel. This is who we are. And now finally, Ephesians 4. We are to pursue one another. We are to make molecules. Listen, it's hard work. Sometimes it's frustrating. But there's good news because verse 13 tells us when we can finally stop. <sighs> Such good news. Ephesians 4, 13. This is when it's over. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. That's all. When every single one of us are fully recognizable and recognized in the unity of faith and we have a perfect knowledge of the character and compassion of Christ. But, but wait, there's more. Also, we can stop when we've all achieved or arrived at mature personhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is why I call him polypreposition. He just keeps adding things on there. We can stop when all of this happens, when every single one of us looks just like Jesus. No, we're never going to become divine like Jesus, but we will be like him in completion. Nothing left to transform. We will be like him in character. Our thoughts will be his. Our, our wants will be his. Do you see? We're not there yet. This kind of reminds me because tomorrow is the day that many of our students will also start school if you're in the public school sector. Now, I don't know if you families have done this, but many of our families put little marks on a door frame or on a wall, and they sort of track and they chart the growth of their children through the years. And it's sweet and it's wonderful until you realize, I'm not ever going to put another mark on the door because they've left. And then you're a blithering idiot like I'm about to be. That happens, but this is Paul saying, that's the manner, that's the measure of the stature of Christ. And it's like he reaches up and he puts a mark on the throne of Jesus himself. He says, until we all arrive at that level of completion, of maturity, all of us, then we keep doing the work of the ministry. So we would say it this way. The completion of a Christian comes through community. The completion of a Christian only comes through community. We equip the saints for the work of ministry. What is ministry? Diakonos, through the dust. It is the way the church accomplishes her purpose. And we'll keep doing that until every single one of us is the fully completed Christian we were created to be. What is the church's purpose? More on that in a moment. Verse 14, Paul's going to tell us why. Why this is such a big deal. Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children Apparently, all of us come into this world, this is going to shock you, children. But we also spiritually stay that way if left to our own devices. One of the principal things about children is that they are, by themselves, defenseless. They have to be loved, led, guided, and guarded. And Paul says that the world at large are children. 
left to themselves, they will descend into atomism, individuals purposeless. Paul says, no, we do all this so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every, and every one of these expressions is in and of itself a sermon, but we'll skip all that for now, by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Every church always is going to be susceptible to deceitful doctrines and troublesome teachings. I can't tell you how many times we've had to entertain people and go, nope, sorry, it's not who we are. We don't believe that. We don't do that. And if you want to do that, you're not going to be comfortable here. Always. And some of it sounds really good if we're only listening through our fleshly ears. Our only defense is to be completed in maturity in community. Paul says this is why we do what we do because so much is at stake and it matters. Verse 15, he says, rather speaking the truth in love, literally rather truthing in love. I hear all the time, well, you're either a church of truth or you're a church of love. They can't both be present. Wrong. The Apostle Paul says wrong. Truthing in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Scripture is going to tell us over and over again, every living thing grows. And the moment stagnation or stoppage occurs, it begins to die. Jesus himself, not only is he the aim of our maturity and growth, he's also the source. He's the head. He has provided all that we need for life and godliness, 2 Peter 1 says. He is the source and he's the end game, the objective, the goal of our completion. That's how much is at stake. And just to make sure we get it, verse 16. From whom, this Jesus, the whole body or the whole molecule joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The bride of Christ itself takes on spiritual mass and it begins to grow because of who Christ is and what he has done in his bride. So Paul describes these multiple elements that all come together to create this incredibly brilliant molecule that somehow reflects and hosts the glory of God himself. And he's worth pursuing. So what are we, what are we doing? It's, it's August. It's sort of the start of the rhythm of a new church year, a new school year. I just want you to know that we are going to be fervently focused, fiercely focused on making molecules. So in view of this incredibly high ecclesiology that Paul writes in Ephesians 4, I want to be as absolutely practical as I can. So just two very quick points of implication. Number one goes like this. Just walk across the room. That's it. This is the so what, this is the now what. Just walk across the room. That's what I'm asking you to do. This is all I'm asking you to do. In other words, I want you to resist the urge to atomize resist the urge to keep to yourself resist the urge when you see that person to go and not talk to them you see them over there man hoof it walk across the room leave no hand unshook leave no neck unhugged just do it and here's what we're going to do we're all going to agree to this okay if and when you walk up to someone you say hi my name's Eric and they go yeah, yeah I know you've had dinner in my house three times just give grace, okay? And if someone says that to you, you go, yeah, okay, you know what? I, you're right. It's on me. I'm going to buy your Luann platter at Luby's. Come on, let's go. Just walk across the room. Listen, virtually nobody leaves our church on account of doctrine. Those were the bad old days. 
doesn't hardly ever happen anymore. No one comes and says, you know what, I'm kind of out on that whole Trinity deal. I think there's only two. They go, well, golly, that's awkward. Doesn't happen. They say, listen, I was sick for six weeks and nobody called. I, I was traveling and nobody missed me. And yet they want to be completely left alone and yet they want to be so connected. There's this crazy madness. So we want to do all that we can by God's grace through his leading to help us all get connected. So walk across the room, meet someone, take somebody to lunch today. If you can't afford it, Mike Hall has an unlimited budget. He will pay for your lunch, I promise. Take someone to lunch, just walk across the room. Listen, what Ephesians 4, 7 to 16 is telling us is a massively profound truth. When we pursue and love one another despite all of our fleshly reasons not to. I know, I know. There's all kinds of reasons that you don't want to go talk to that guy because, you know, that guy. But when we pursue one another and we love one another, that is, we want their good above ours. We have a well-reasoned concern for them. We want to move our lives toward him. When we do that, we are actually engaged in spiritual warfare against the schemes of our enemy. Make no mistake, we have an enemy and he is real and his design, his plan is to atomize the children of God. And so when you simply take someone to tacos, you're smacking the enemy. Do you understand? You don't have to read 80s horror novels about spiritual warfare. You just gotta take someone for a taco plate. You're waging spiritual warfare simply by pursuing and loving somebody else. Second point. The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. I never really understood that until I began to really sort of appreciate the glory and the grandeur of the church because the church is full of all these wonderful people. And there's no doubt that conversions, transformations happen individually. But, but the New Testament knows no unchurched Christian doesn't exist. And a church Christian is a person who is indwelled by God's Spirit to serve the body of Christ. The sum is always greater than the whole of its parts. You are a wonderful, eternal being. But when we take one plus one plus one plus one, it equals like a thousand. This is God's plan. And when that happens, it begins to feed itself. And it is a glorious thing. Our mandate is to make molecules. Now, let me just say, this is not just an end of August, start of school year, pep talk, sort of a locker room charge of, whoosh, go get him, tiger, take someone to lunch. It's way, way more than that. There's a deeply, profoundly theological truth that hangs in the balance. In this same book of Ephesians, Paul's going to tell us something astonishing. He's going to tell us why the church exists in the first place. And if I heard that, I would want to sit up a little more... Uh, I don't know, a little bit more paying attention to understand this is the whole point and the purpose and the plan for the church. It's in Ephesians chapter three, verse 10. Right before chapter four is chapter three. This is the purpose of the church. And remember, the ministries of the church are simply how the church accomplishes her purpose. What's the purpose? Ephesians chapter three, verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold, that is the variegated, that is the kaleidoscopic, that is the multifaceted wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I cannot make a big enough deal about that. It is through the church that God has made a really big deal of in the angelic realm. You may go, what's that got to do with me? I don't know. Do you care about God's glory? 
You claim that you love God, but if you have the opportunity to really bring him glory in a place that you didn't even recognize or feel it, would you do it? That's love. When we pursue one another, when we love one another, when we go after one another, God gets a burst of glory and recognition in the angelic realm. In the present tense, do you understand the enormity of simply loving one of our children on the second floor? God gets glory in the angelic realm as it happens. That might sound fantastical. I'm telling you, it's real. Now, tragically, it's not the last time the church at Ephesus is going to receive a communication about this. Paul's sitting in prison around A.D. 62. He writes this letter to the church at Ephesus. But about 30 years later, the church at Ephesus gets another letter, this time from Jesus himself. And we find it in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. And in verse 4, Jesus says to them, man, you guys are crushing it with doctrine. I mean, everybody in your whole congregation speaks Greek. Wow. Actually, they actually already spoke Greek. But anyway, you guys are crushing it with doctrine. It's amazing. But this I hold against you. You have lost the love you had at first. You may have a translation that says your first love. Bad translation. You've lost the love that you had at first. The very thing that Paul charges them to be about is loving one another, and they've lost it. They've descended merely into doctrine. Jesus says, I can't have that because my Father's not being glorified in the angelic realm. I'm going to take your lampstand. May it never be said of us. It only took one generation, 30 years, for the church at Ephesus to lose their love of one another. There is a gravitational pull to atomism. Nothing drifts to good. We have to pursue one another. We have to make molecules. It is what we are created and connected to be. Now maybe you're here this morning and uh, you're not a believer at all. You thought this was just a place you could come and get behind some cause. Sorry, we don't do that very well or at all. But here's what we do believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he lived a perfect life, that he fulfilled the demands of the law, that is perfection, because I could never do it. And instead, he took all of the stuff that I do, which is sin, which is falling short of the character of Christ, and he says, I'll tell you what I'll do, I'll trade you, and I'll even pay the wages of your sin with my death. And it's not fair. But I have received grace unmerited favor and oh my goodness as if that weren't enough he's also given me divine enablement to be about more than I could have ever done on my own human strength that's a life worth living sign me up I'm in and if you're not a believer I invite you to believe that I know it doesn't make a whole lot of sense <laughs> neither does the rest of your life we've checked I invite you to believe for the rest of you, you've been a believer for a very long time and perhaps church has just been that place where you go to get fed or you go to hear a teaching thing. And I just want to remind you that this church is fiercely about making much of God. That in the present tense, he's glorified in the angelic realm. And I invite you to all over again as we start this new rhythm to purposely pursue others. Let's make molecules. Let's pray together. Father, I don't know what I'm talking about, but I pray that you do. And I know that you do. And so I pray that everyone gathered will have heard a better sermon than the one that was just preached. And that you will speak through your word, by your spirit, to these, your people. And you will continue the work of transformation. Father, if there's one here this morning that does not know you, that is not known by you for all eternity, I pray that you will lead them 
irresistibly by your spirit into a saving knowledge of your son Jesus. They will step out of darkness into life, light. Pray God that they will have courage to ask someone about that, to be led into a growing relationship with your son Jesus. For the rest of us, Father, would you expand unto the enormous our comprehension of our, of our Christ. Would you help us, give us wisdom to reorient, re-architect our lives around making molecules, building the body of Christ until such time uh, as Lord Jesus, you return. We pray all these things the only way we can in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Feel of our benediction. This is from 2 Peter 3, 17, 18. Therefore, dear friends, since you have already known this, be on your guard so you may not be carried away by errors of lawless men and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory for now and evermore. Greet somebody today. Have a happy Sabbath. You're dismissed. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.